The Athletic. Hello everyone, I'm Danny Kelly and this is The View from the Lane, the Athletics Tottenham Hotspur podcast, number one podcast on the planet relating to Spurs, in which there are only 2,000 other Spurs podcasts that you would do very well to ignore. Now today I'm joined by Jack Pitt-Brook to reflect on Antonio Conte's first game in charge of Spurs. We'll also be joined by the Athletics Italian football writer James Horncastle, legendary James Horncastle who will give us the lowdown on Conte and Paritici's relationship. Also hear from James about Conte's backroom staff and the players uh, he may look to uh, target in the January transfer window and beyond. First, Jack, I think it's beholden um, for the uh, joy of the Spurs fans listening for us to have a quick talk about the game. We'll come back to it, about the game uh, last night before we discuss it in more detail, as I say, later in the show. You were there. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it reminds me why I first fell in love with the Europa Conference League as a boy. You know, it was oh, so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Five goals, three red cards, lots of some good football, some bad football. Um, yeah, not very Antonio Conte in some ways, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I must I must say I absolutely loved it. It was a, a Spurs masterclass, wasn't it? In, in in the ups and downs and all the rest of it. It was a brilliant game of football, regardless of what competition it was in. And as I always say in situations, I know it's a cliche, it's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. Welcome, Antonio. That's what goes on at Spurs. And if you could be in charge of that, good luck to you. We'll talk more about the uh, actual guts of the game a little later on. But I am delighted to say that the Athletics uh, Italian football writer, James Horncastle, he says writer, czar, king, overlord, whatever word you choose <laughs> is more appropriate. Um, and it, of course, it, it is to him that we turn for our detailed knowledge of the new manager, his relationship with the director of football and all the rest of it. So in the last, uh, apart from Ryan Mason, about whom we have almost intimate knowledge, suddenly, next to his name in the car park and among the coaching staff, James, are just a whole lot of other largely Italianate names that I don't know. Who are these men? Well, some of them have worked or played under Conte uh, in the past. Um, Conte has actually played under one of them himself. Um, Who's, so which one is that? That is uh, Giampiero Ventrone, um, the Marine, uh, the fitness coach uh, who's come in. Uh, they worked together at Juventus um, during the 90s, um, which I think uh, draws with it uh, some attention um, as well. I mean, he's someone who is known as uh, the Marine by the Juventus players at that time. All of a sudden, this new equipment started coming into the gym. Um, they had these kind of torturous exercises, which sound like the bleep test, which you had to ring a bell if you couldn't complete it. Um, and sort of, you know, players were vomiting here, there and everywhere. Like it was horrible. Game. Like <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. Um, no, they would even like uh, play uh, Wagner. Um, whilst they were whilst they were training, which you know, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be that's going to go on the Spurs playlist, um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, there's then Christian Stellini, who is his kind of tall, lurch-like figure, um, who is his number two. You know, probably to be seen, you know, I don't know, outside a nightclub in 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 Soho as a bouncer. I mean, that's that's what Stellini looks it, like. He former. was the man who was doing the talking behind his hands when the second um, Arnhem goal went in. 
Um, he, yeah. he, uh, there was a sudden urgent meeting at the edge of the technical area, wasn't there? So Stellini played under under Conte um, when Conte was first starting out as a coach and has kind of stri- tried to strike it out on his own and then come back as a few other Conte's uh, assistants have done. Uh, but let's say if, if Conte gets uh, a match ban or is, is suspended for, I don't know, being too animated on the touchline, which he often is, it'll be Stellini who will step in for him. Um, and then you've got Gianluca Conte, who uh, I, I imagine you can guess is is his brother or one of his brothers. Um, and Gianluca is, is someone who tends to look after the match analysts and does the kind of video analysis that, that Conte wants because that's something that he's very big on, is Antonio. Um, did his uh, kind of coaching license thesis on it because that's what you have to do to get a coaching license in, in Italy. Um, and so you know, you'll have Spurs players having two-hour video sessions, which you, know, you tend to hear in modern football these days, coaches only want these video sessions to be you know, five or 10 minutes um, because players' attention spans apparently are not that long. Conte doesn't believe in any of that. You know, he very much will have them sat watching things for two hours or so. And then around Ventrone, various different fitness coaches um, as well who he's had. And, and I think that really just goes to underline how important fitness running is um, to Conte. And I think we'll probably see Spurs get back to their kind of Pochettino levels in terms of you know how hard they train and how intense they play. That's definitely a big motivation behind the appointment is that I know that people at Spurs are sort of frustrated that the, the squad was the fittest squad in the country under Pochettino. And then Mourinho came in with a very, very different approach to fitness. You know, it's much, it's more about keeping yourselves fit through playing games rather than hammering the players on the training ground every day to get them fit. And, you know, after 17 months of Mourinho, they were one of the least fit teams in the country. You know, players, I think there's a perception that some of the Spurs players are heavier than they were under Pochettino, perhaps, or certainly performing worse on the running stats and the distance covered, that sort of thing. And again, this back in the summer, this was another priority for Tottenham. And when when they interviewed Conte in, in June, he was saying, you know, I'm going to get everyone fit again, I promise. Uh, obviously, that appointment didn't happen. And then Nuno was tasked with getting the players fit. And, you know, the evidence is that he failed to do that. You know, Spurs are still bottom of the distance covered. And even yesterday, you know, you could tell they kind of flagged after a strong start. They did flag in the game. So I'm sure that, you know, it, it's a huge priority of Tottenham's that Conte should should get the players fit. Although obviously it is harder doing it, you know, coming in on the 3rd of November or whatever it was when you're playing two games a week rather than having a pre-season. The reason we've got here, James, is this is a really tricky one for you. And thank you for that exposition of that group of strangers uh, in, in the area there for Spurs in the technical area. This is going to really require you to think uh, on your feet here because um, of the squad of 25, maybe some young players as well, that Spurs currently have, who do you think may or may not, both categories please, be good fits for Conte ball, for Antonio Conte once? Well, uh, to be honest, <laughs> thinking about this yesterday... Um... I looked at the the wide players, the attacking wingers, and thought, well, how does he get those guys into the team? And and one of them was Lucas, who, funnily enough, did start uh, against Vitesse. So we've seen him be able to not necessarily play 3-5-2 with two wingbacks, but kind of a 3-4-3. I mean, that was very much the case at Chelsea. Charlie Eccleshare and I, we did a piece about how Conte gets the best out of the strikers that he has. It doesn't matter who he inherits, he tends to get those guys scoring goals and working really well together, having these strike partnerships. But at Chelsea, for example, it was Diego Costa 
and Costa was his shit house, and that that's all that mattered to him. And basically, he had Hazard, he had Pedro, and he had those guys float around him. So now I look at that and think, okay, Lucas will be kind of fine. I'm sure. I'm sure Lucas will be fine at the back. I think Romero is someone that Conte will be very well aware of. I think Conte will uh, have no problem getting. Romero to play his kind of not only his style of football but just having the mentality the grit and the determination being aggressive um, that's not going to be an issue uh, for, 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 for Conte I wonder who the ball playing centre-backs are I mean Dyer is, 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 is that going to be Dyer given that he's, he's got a background as a midfield player uh, I think that's something that they need to work on um, going into going into into the transfer window and I, I think this is you know probably the story of of every Spurs podcast since he's been at Spurs, but I'm interested to see what he can get out of Tanky and Dombele because I look at the player and I think he's everything that Conte would kind of desire in a midfield player. Really, what do you mean by that? Because um, I can remember, you know, the, the Chelsea team. I'm not so sure about the Juventus team that he managed. Um, I don't remember anybody um, flicking the ball around very much over their own head on the edge of their own penalty area. Ah, poor Pogba, Danny. I mean, I mean, those those are things that I suppose that uh, Conte tries to. I wouldn't say iron out of a player's game, uh, but I remember, for example, Conte getting particularly angry with Pogba for for trying a few too many back heels, and one of them leading to a to them conceding a goal. I think against Kievo in a game they should have won and ended up drawing, and Conte hit the roof. But I just think he always wants to have midfield players in his team who can join in the attacks. He's always had players who score goals from midfield. And I think he'll look at Ndombele as being one of the players who's got the best skill set to do that. You know, I mean, for example, at Juventus, Pogba did that, but particularly Marquisio, Arturo Vidal, more recently, Barella for, for Inter. So he always looks to get um, midfield players to you know, sort of break that defensive line, join in the attacks. And I think, I think Ndombele could be one of those. I also think Lo Celso is... Is, is an interesting player from a, again, someone who, I don't know, is able to sort of combine that kind of silk and, and a bit of steel. So I actually think the squad, while it might not be deep enough to play this kind of system, it, there is the sort of foundations there for, for it to be a successful team under Conte. I'll come back perhaps later on when we talk about the game to Giovanni Lo Celso because uh, I have to say my patience with Giovanni is is wearing very, very thin indeed. It's only my regular phone calls to Lionel Messi that keeps him on side at all in, in my mind. What about January? Do you expect to see Spurs doing much business in January, James? And will it all be people uh, from Italy if there are incomings? Well, I mean, that seemed to be where Paratici was was going for his managers uh, in the in in the summer. Conte, then Fonseca, who'd worked obviously at, at Roma, Gattuso. Um, yeah, those Fonseca and Gattuso profiles I wrote when they were on the brink of, of of being appointed by Spurs will never see the light of day. So I imagine, I imagine he will. Um, I think there are opportunities for, for for Spurs in the Italian market coming up, particularly when it it comes to what Spurs' budget is. You know, we don't expect it to be Newcastle. We don't expect it to be um, a, a big budget. But, for example, there'll be players who will be available for free. Frank Kessie, for example, the AC Milan midfield player. Marcelo Brozovic, someone who Conte has worked with at Inter, sort of deep-line playmaker in midfield. Their contracts are up. And, yeah, Paratici tends to move very quickly on these uh, on these things. Certainly, that was the case at Juventus. One of Paratici's strengths was being able to build the Juventus team at the beginning of the last decade, which could not appeal to star players. 
was was able to get deals done on freeze for for players who were clearly well suited to Conte's system and upgrades on what they already had. James, can you talk us through a bit the um, the relationship between Paratici and Conte? Like, how far do they go back, and um, how how much was Paratici able to kind of keep a lid on Conte's emotional side? Did Paratici give Conte the job at Juve in the first place? Andrea Agnelli gave uh, Antonio Conte the job. Agnelli had been at Juventus as president for a year, and he had decided to completely restructure the club, and so he brought in uh, a guy called uh, Giuseppe Marotta who became the chief executive, and Fabio Paratici. And they came as a package. And the reason why Agnelli appointed those two guys was because they had overachieved at Sampdoria. Uh, they had got Sampdoria into the Champions League preliminaries. And the first move that Marotto and Paratici did was to go and headhunt the coach who got Sampdoria into the Champions League preliminaries, which is a guy called Gigi Del Neri. And it did not work out. So you know, Juventus finished seventh that year. And... It was at that stage that they interviewed Antonio Conte and Conte basically really wanted the job and put himself forward for the job. He said, look, if I didn't get to coach Juventus uh, within the first five years of my coaching career, basically I would have packed it all in. Um, And I mean, he's a Juventus legend, Juventus captain um, when he was a player. And he went for dinner with Agnelli and basically convinced Agnelli that um, you should give me the job. And they never looked back. And as I mentioned, I mean, to be honest, sporting director and the chief executive, who essentially is a chief, the more senior sporting director, they are there to basically kind of look after the mid to long term interests of the club as well as satisfy the manager. So some of the business that they did was not necessarily with Conte in mind. Yeah, for example, Pogba, I think, was just seen as a very good opportunity um, to get for little or no money. But as I mentioned, I think early early years Conte at Juventus is a good is a good parallel with with Spurs because for all we, what we think of Juventus's history and tradition at that stage, yeah, they they had tried to bounce back after Calciopoli, um, where they were relegated for the first time in their history in two thousand six, and uh, they came back. They got back into the Champions League. They then wanted to make a push for the league title. Um, they decided to put all their eggs in one basket and sign a player from Werder Bremen called Diego, Diego Ribas. It meant moving away from their 4-4-2, which Juventus had played for a long, long time. And it was a disaster. And um, they finished seventh. Then basically Agnelli says, right, I'm coming back. I'm going to become president. He finishes seventh. And the club, even though it was such a big name, had been out of the Champions League for a couple of years, so didn't have a lot of, of money to spend. And they couldn't appeal to players um, in the the way that they had done in the past. So, for example, they tried to sign Robin Van Persie when he was looking to leave Arsenal. They had Van Persie come over to Turin. They showed him the training ground and he said, it's very nice, but to be honest, I'm going to join Manchester United. And so, you know, as much as there's this image of Conte being a very demanding manager, I think, uh, you know, first, first year at Juventus, he was very much like, okay, this is my dream job. I've got it. Brilliant. Uh, let's 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 see where we get, and then he overachieved as Conte always does. You know, undefeated season in his first season uh, at Juventus, and only two other Italian teams had done that in history. One was Perugia, who kind of drew every game in the 1970s. Didn't win the title though; they were unbeaten, if I'm right. Exactly. No, you're spot on, Danny. Um, and the other was was Fabio Capello's AC AC Milan, and then it was only really in his final season where Conte had kind of said, "Look, we've had an undefeated season my first year." Second year, we've got more points. We've scored more goals. 
third year, we actually broke the 100 points barrier. Now, all of our fans are looking at us and saying, the only way to improve this team is to do better in the Champions League. And Conte's reaction was that you have to buy me Juan Cuadrado, which doesn't look that <laughs> doesn't look that kind of extravagant in hindsight. No. Um, and they said, oh, it's a bit expensive. There's Premier League interest in him. And to be honest, I, don't, I think... I think our money's better spent elsewhere. And that's when Conte said, okay, well, I'm not going to sign an extension of my contract, but I'll come back and see out my final year. He goes away on holiday, comes back for preseason. Two days in, he resigns. And Paratici at that stage was, I wouldn't say junior, um, but he was still very much someone who was flying off to go and scout in Ecuador, um, for example, build relationships with uh, with agents all over the world. And it was mainly Marotta, for example, who would be kind of, I wouldn't say keeping a lid on Antonio, but manage, managing that uh, on, a, on, on a more day-to-day basis. It's only really, I would say, in the last five years where Parathici has been front and center and would be dealing with that kind of thing. You know, Antonio is, uh, he's very passionate about what he does. Um, and you have to be all in. Uh, with him. Yeah, that doesn't mean he's going to be knocking down the door at Tottenham um, and saying, right, you need to spend this amount of money. But he is very upfront and direct about what he feels, not only what the team needs, but what the club needs. And yeah, it's very demanding for everyone around him. The received wisdom is that they uh, they go after Conte in the summer. It doesn't come on for whatever reason. Apparently, he was still um, too deeply upset by by Inter Milan winning the title in Italy. And then it, they come back to him, and he's made all these demands, and he's been promised loads and loads of funds. Uh, but I don't think Spurs have loads and loads of funds. So how do you square that circle, James? Well, it was interesting listening to Paratici in his press conference before the Vitesse game, saying that they hadn't spoken about uh, a budget or they hadn't spoken about... Uh, transfers. I'm skeptical of that. Yeah, that's straight into the British Parliament, that kind of talk, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as I mentioned in terms of, you know, looking ahead to January, but particularly the summer, I, I think there are opportunities for, for Tottenham in a market that Perethici and Conte know very well, which, you know, are players like Kessie, are players like Brozovic, who would be available for free. And if they can already kind of work on getting deals done for them uh, or players like them, sort of after January, then I think that's the kind of business that would satisfy um, Conte. Do you think Conte is like Mourinho in the sense that he wants kind of to buy a lot of ready-made 30-year-olds or does he want kind of younger players who he can mould a bit more? His priority will always be athleticism and application. And you tend to be able to get that from young players more than from experienced players. So there will be a blend, I'm sure, but, for example, I mean, at Inter, if you look at their signings, yes, okay, he did want experience and winners. And he basically signed Arturo Vidal and uh, yeah, who he had at Juventus, Alexander Kolarov, players like that. But their biggest signings were players in their early 20s. And to be honest, they played a much more important role in Inter winning their league title last season than the experienced veterans. So you had Ashraf Hakimi, for example, the wingback. He's, he was 21 when they signed him. Barella was their first big signing under Conte, which was then kind of dwarfed by them signing Lukaku in the same summer. Barella was, I think, 22 at the time. Yeah, Lautaro Martinez was 21, I think, when he took over. So the spine of that Inter team was actually very young. The thing is, I think young players are often the ones who are now the most expensive, particularly the ones who have, yeah. have potential. Yeah. Um, and that might be that might be a, 
uh, an interesting conversation that Prathachin and Conte have to have. Listen, uh, James, I can't, I can't tell you that was absolutely fascinating and probably shone more light on the whole thing. With all due respect to my colleagues at The Athletic and elsewhere, thank you so much for joining us here on The View from the Lane. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Yeah, you're listening to the View from the Lane podcast. James Horncastle has uh, departed uh, from the podcast now, leaving a great big pile of wisdom behind him. You, unfortunately, are left with just myself, Danny Kelly, and Jack Pitbrook uh, to talk about uh, at least some of last night's goings-on. Um, and we'll have a little look forward to the game against Everton. So, Jack, I mean, first and foremost, we all know the legend of how Chelsea were coming a cropper at Arsenal, therefore he goes to three at the back. So it was no surprise to me, I guess, that they started with three at the back last night and wing-backs playing high at the pitch. Yeah, I suppose it's a case of starting to mean to go on. You know, clearly Conte's only had, well, the players let slip afterwards. He's taken two, two training sessions. I think technically he hasn't, he hasn't taken any. Yeah, but he, he, was just, he was just observing Ryan Mason taking training. But it's enough time to tell the players what you want them to do, but it's not really enough time to teach them how to do it. So you saw the outline of what I think Conte will try to do. So 3-4-3, three, three, Reguilon and Royale pushed very high and wide as wing-backs. They defended a bit higher up the pitch than we're used to. They pressed a bit higher in midfield. They didn't just hoof the ball forward from the back. They tried to pass the ball through the middle of the pitch. And, you know, it was in parts very fun and in parts pretty bad. And it would be insane to judge Conte on it or to say, no, well, he's... No, no. But, I, yeah, you could definitely see, like, in very, very faint pencil outline, a sense of what he was trying to get them to do. I thought Emerson had one of his best games, you know, in an attacking sense. Cause yeah. I've not been that impressed with him going forward so far until yesterday. Like, he's not... He doesn't, I don't know whether it's to do with confidence or tact or instructions from Nuno or whatever, but he hadn't really been taking guys on, beating them 1v1. But he did that a few times yesterday. You know, he uh, there were one or two occasions where I remember him beating the left back. And he was also the man who ran on to Harry Winks' great pass to get their keeper sent off with about five or ten minutes left. So in an attacking sense, I thought Emerson was better than we've seen so far. And Regulon... Uh, you know, he ran a lot. Execution wasn't always there. Was involved in the kind of slightly shambolic Harry Kane goal where he broke down the left and then it came to Ben Davis of all people in the mm. box, which I guess is in itself a show of how different this is from the Nuno team that you'll have the kind of the man on the left of the back three, the furthest forward Tottenham player on an, on, on an attack. It was, that, it was that was a moment of pure joy to me because, uh, you know, and people will say, oh, the shackles were off. They weren't probably off. That's probably no. not the way it was. <laughs> but at least he, Ben Davis had enough confidence that he wasn't going to be hooked just for appearing in the opposite opposition penalty area. In the nicest possible way, if anybody tells you, if any, if anybody watches the Antonio Conte team and says, you know what, the shackles are off. They're talking rubbish. Like yeah. literally no <laughs> team is more shackled than an Antonio Conte team. They are playing specifically exactly where he tells them to play on the pitch. 
it is incredibly regimented and disciplined. And that, you know, that's why he trains them 11 versus nobody on the training pitch, dragging them around from one place to another. So, you know, once Conte gets settled in and once he's had enough time with the players, wherever a player is on the pitch, that's because that's where Conte's told them to be. So the shackles, the shackles are not off. The shackles are very much coming back on. But hopefully, he'll be shackling them into some uh, fun attacking, winning football. Exactly that. And uh, also, I wondered um, last night if Emerson Royal has suddenly realised that he's now being paid by the stepover. Quite extraordinary amount. Yeah, of there were some. There were some very like what I enjoyed about those stepovers was that they served no functional practical purpose. Not it's at not all. like he was doing them to beat the left back or to. Uh, win a free kick or anything. He was just doing them because he it looked like fun. He could waste a bit, waste a few seconds. <laughs> Wait, waiting for the Spurs forwards to arrive in the in the penalty area, which takes us on to Harry Kane. Um, obviously, everything that the England captain does is examined by under a jeweler's eyepiece. And all I would say, and you can probably tell me that, that this is right or wrong, is that he the dropping back into the middle of midfield was at a, an absolute minimum. Not 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 completely gone. But he was told to stay up in the penalty area. Yeah, so there were some times where he'd kind of come a bit short, play more as a 10, and then play a forward pass through. So obviously that's, you know, there was the Lucas goal, I think, came came through that. Mm. There were a few other times, particularly and in the was, first that half. And that was brilliant by Kane, by the way. Yeah, that, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, and that from what James has said, that's comparable to how Lukaku would play it into. You know, Lukaku would drop into a 10 role, play a forward pass to Lautaro Martinez. And I'm sure we'll see exactly the same kind of dynamic between Kane and Son coming up well, but, but yeah you're right what we didn't see is Kane thinking well this is going shit isn't it and then like coming all the way back getting the ball off Dyer and then trying a diagonal ball because of course that's not what Conte wants and I also thought Kane just looked kind of like physically engaged in the game you know you know what I mean like he was running he was winning headers he won so many free kicks the second half when Tottenham were up against it obviously down to 10 men before the Vitesse red cards they needs to kill a bit of time we, we see this a lot from when, when Kane's on it he's so good at this it kind of gets the ball backs into the defender falls over onto the ball wins the free kick it reminded me a little bit of do you remember uh, England Denmark in the Euros yeah where Kane had to do that oh, he did that so much or even the famous uh, England Columbia game in the World Cup in 2018 like if when Kane is like feeling in his sort of good physical way and his team need him to kill time, he's really, really, really good at it. So I thought yeah. that was an impressive element of his game yesterday. And to be honest, I think I'm incredibly bullish about Kane at the moment just because he's had a pretty slow start to the season. I think he's been feeling pretty miserable about how, about everything yeah. as you would as you would do. But he's now finds himself being managed by the one of the very, very, very best managers in the world and no... Of course, he's going to respond positively to that. And of course, he's going. Conte, I think, is the perfect guy to get Kane fitter than he's been for a while, hungrier than he's been for a while. And I'm, I'm now, I can now say with, I mean, this might come back to bite me, but I think Kane will now have a really good season and score 20 plus goals. What the arrival of Conte has done for some of these players is to cut out yet another layer of excuses for them. They've got a great training facility. They've got a brilliant stadium. They've got a fantastic manager. Yeah. So if you're wandering around in the days out there, that's down to you, son. Completely, yeah. And like the, the fact is that players always, 
all players hide behind a bad manager. You know, yeah, they, they just do. And Tottenham Human players nature. do it more Human than and Tottenham players do it more than most. You know, Tottenham these Tottenham players. You know, three Tottenham managers have got sacked in the last two in, a, in the last. I think Pochettino sacking was less than two years ago. So yeah, the last two years, three Tottenham managers have got sacked. But they're not going to sack Conte at least not for a while. You know, he's too good. So he's not going anywhere. And that means that the Tottenham players have to start performing. And Conte, in his press conference after the game, Conte said, you know, we've got, he basically said, we've got incredible training ground and stadium. And now it's time we've got to drag the team up to that level. You know, we've got to make a team worthy of the facilities that we've got. Which just goes to show what you know what his his ambition is, and I'm sure if the top if the Tottenham players don't go with him, then I imagine they're going to get shown the door. Yeah, one more thing about um, last night's team. As I said to James Horncastle earlier, there were times, and he ma- and he mentioned Pogba, and, and that was fair enough. There were times when he has not Antonio Conte really been bothered about having a creative or a 10 or whatever. In fact, the struggles of Christian Eriksen to get into Milan Inter's team last year um, illustrates the point. Once again, Hoiberg and Skip starts to get out. I'm careful here because I'm skating out to thin ice and towards the thin ice of heresy among Spurs fans because, of course, uh, Hoiberg has been an ever-present in the team, although got to substitute yesterday, and Skip is one of our own. I get that. I've been very worried about these two uh, even when they established themselves as Nuno's mid- midfield too, not because there's anything wrong with either of them, but because they're both, in many ways, exactly the same player. Um, and yet he, he picked them yesterday. I don't think he would have been too pleased with what they did because it, um, they, they weren't a bad team at all, Arnhem, but they clearly um, were able to bypass Spurs' double midfield defensive uh, shield at will. Yeah, so I think this is the most interesting thing about Conte's Spurs is that, let's say, assuming that they stick with the three-four-three, I think seven players are guaranteed to play at the very least the rest of the season. So that is Luis Romero, Dyer. Not sure about the other guy in the back three, Reguilon and Royale, mm-hmm. Son and Kane, and that leaves you three. Aside from the, the the guy in the back three, that leaves you three more positions, which obviously yesterday were occupied by Lucas in the front three, Hoiberg and Skip in the middle. I have no idea going forward how Conte is going to fill those roles because as far you know, there's he's got so many different options. He's got Deli, Lacelso, and Dombele, Hoiberg, Skip, Winks. And now Conte's obviously used very different types of midfielders. He's used, you know, when he went to Chelsea, people didn't think he'd use Fabregas. Then he ended up bringing Fabregas in, even though Fabregas wasn't like a kind of an athlete or a runner. So I don't think he's absolutely fixed to having two guys who are big runners. But I just don't know. Like, I don't... Will he stick no. with the 3-4-3? Will he stick with Lucas? Will he push Lacelso into that front three? Will he have a Dombele plus one in the middle? Maybe someone who gives him a bit more cover? Will he bring back Winks? I thought Winks was fantastic when he came on. I think it's a pos- this is it feels like the kind of last chance saloon for Tottenham a bit for, for Delhi and Winks to be mm-hmm. honest, given how they were frozen up by Nuno. Of course, um, but I thought Winks was excellent yesterday. And when Winks is good, he has a lot of you know when he's positive and confident, he has a lot of energy. He has a lot of energy and he gets the ball forward. If Conte can coach some of Winks's bad defensive habits out of him and maximize his kind of positivity and energy then I don't know, maybe there's a player there. So I just think this is the biggest question. It's the question to which I have absolutely no answer or guess. But I am looking forward to finding out. And you're not wrong. Uh, you're, that, is, that is the one that just defies easy answer. 
I would say there is a part, in my mind, and we saw last season with Inter, who I was following with great interest, um, obviously their, their attempts to wrestle the title away from Juventus. He didn't play Christian Eriksen for most of the season. And then the last quarter of the season, he decided he needed a tiny bit more creativity. I think perhaps as Lukaku, who had a, such a wonderful um, spell, was starting to flag slightly physically because he played virtually every second of the season for them. He needed a little bit more support. He brought him in and he did okay. I wonder. Well, that sounds just like Fab- sorry. That sounds mm. just like Fabregas mm. in 2016-17, yeah. where at the start of the season he played a three-four-three, uh, I think, uh, with what Conte, Pedro, Hazard as the front yeah. three. Yeah. No, sorry, uh, Costa, Pedro, Hazard as the Co- front yes. three. Yeah. Uh, and just Matic and Kante in the middle. But then over the course of the season, uh, he started playing Fabregas more and more and more, changed the system to a three-five-two, and in part that was because he obviously had this big row with Diego Costa mm-hmm. halfway through the season, and maybe he just wanted a bit more. Skill. Sorry, I talked yeah. over the middle of you. No, no, absolutely. No. That, that's the absolute policy of this podcast. And one of the reasons why View from the Lane is so now bejeweled with awards and beloved by the population. One last thing about the game. I've really stuck up so far for Romero. Um, I like the fact that he wants to be on the front foot. He clearly likes defending. He's not afraid of a row. He uh, has got um, about fourth down on his to-do list is some shit housing in every game. Now I wonder, because I don't hear him speak, um, you know, he, he presumably has only limited English, so it's hard for me to judge. I'm wondering if he's a dimwit, because what he did last night was pure dimwittery, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a uh, yeah a very silly second yellow kind of rugby tackle, and then rolling around on the floor to look <laughs> look painfully injured. Which actually, the the Vitesse number three who got sent off as well did exactly the same thing, uh, rolling around on the floor. But yeah, clearly, it's one of those difficult things, isn't it? Because you can't, you know, this is a cliche, so forgive me, but you can't take the aggression out of his game. You can't take you, the, must have, you can't really no. take the rashness out of his game. But what you with that kind of defender, you have to hope that their judgment is perfect or kind of ninety five percent perfect because you you need them to take risks for them to be effective in their job in the team. But you also need them to not do stupid stuff like getting sent off and giving away penalties. And that's what you know, so a good example of someone who managed that balance well would be, I don't know, Vincent Company, for example. You know, he wasn't perfect, but he was aggressive and he got, he, if you get it right nine times out of ten, then it's going to be fine. But if you get it right seven times out of ten, then you're fucked, basically. And that's what I worry about. I just think, look, obviously Comte has worked with brilliant centre-backs over the years with all sorts of different styles. He's had, you know, he's had, he's had aggressive centre-backs as well. You know, he's had David Luiz, for example, who people used to think was shit but was actually really really good and was the the kind of keystone of that of the Chelsea title winning team playing in the middle of the back three obviously Romero is slightly different playing on the right of the back three so Conte is a I think Conte is the right man to coach Romero into getting that balance right between rashness and getting it right and wrong but when it looks when it when it doesn't go well it looks really bad but the arrival of Conte might be the saving of uh, Christian Romero. If Spurs go to a three, anyone who watched Atalanta play so brilliantly over the last few years, a couple of years um, while he was there, will know that essentially um, his rashness is best deployed in a three because one of the three can, when they see Christian heading off towards the horizon, the event horizon and a collision, um, they can just drop back a couple of yards uh, in case the ball pops out in an unfortunate position. We saw with Cavani's goal against Manchester United in a two, his positioning, and for all the good reasons, he wants to win the ball high up and all those good things, but at least sometimes his positioning looks mad. And a three, you have less of a problem with that. And we'll see if Conte, you know, I wouldn't be amazed if he did, if he decided to do something else, but this seems to be the way he's going to start out. Overall, what was your 
your takeaway from the game and the night in the stadium? The night in the stadium was fun. It was really so they they didn't sell the top tier of the of the stadium, but take the top tier out and the rest of it was full. I think it was a really positive. It was a really po- you know, it was a really positive atmosphere in a way that it, I mean I know it was when they beat City in the first game of the season. Sure, uh, but since then it obviously hasn't really been so good. Whereas yesterday was fun. They didn't make a huge song and dance about Conte. So right after they na- after they read out the teams about one minute before kickoff, they said, "Welcome your new head coach, Antonio Conte." And he did a bit of a wave, but he wasn't. I could tell it felt like he didn't want to make it too much about him. I think. Mm. But everybody was really behind him. People were singing his name. There was a lot of energy, which I think kind of transmitted through to the players and helped, you know, the, they played the first half or the first 35 minutes at kind of 100 miles an hour. And I did think at the start, oh my God, Vitesse are horrific. But then over time, like you could tell Tottenham, they couldn't keep it up. And then they made some, they kind of conceded two pretty soft goals. Vitesse are everything that Spurs aren't at the moment, but with lesser players, that they are a well-drilled, utterly familiar 11 with each other, who once the once the pace came out of Spurs' game, were able to play their football. And it turned out their football was plenty for Spurs to think about because you could argue that Hugo Lloris, as so often this season, was Spurs' best player in the end. Yeah, he made he made three really, really, really mm. good saves. You know, f- really fantastic saves. And to be honest, it was also nice just to see the first team, you know, in a Europa Conference League game. Like it's, yeah. I mean, there is part of me that thinks, oh, isn't it nice to see the other players? But at the same time, you know that obviously you know you obviously we, we, didn't we see the yeah we saw this in the away game like if you play too many of the non first team players it does just kill the vibe a bit so it was good to see a proper team like i mean how exactly he balances the different competitions and the players rotation is i mean who knows we have to wait and see on that one uh, but that was good and to be honest and even i actually think they handled the second half well given the early red card they could have felt the early red card the fact the players were tiring they could have folded, but they saw out the game pretty well. Kane was good. He made a bit of a tactical change, bringing on extra defender. There was one moment when they were down to nine men because Davinson Sanchez got kicked in the yeah. head and had to go off to get stitched up and have a, have a bandage. And uh, at that point, Spurs were down to nine. But when they made changes, they got you know they brought an extra defender. They were kind of playing five three one towards the end of the game. And after and at that point, Vitesse obviously had two red cards of their own. Didn't actually create anything. So. I, and afterwards, Conte praised their resilience and he used his favourite word of all, which is suffer. So it was really important that we had to suffer, we, but we suffered as a team. And uh, yeah, I thought Spurs did their suffering pretty well. Yeah, and I think, I think that, I, I suspect, will be the tone of the first couple few months of Antonio Conte's reign. The team will have to do some suffering, but that's far better than what we've seen so far this season, where the fans have been doing all the suffering. Yeah, welcome back to the last section of today's edition of The View from the Lane. Jack Pitbrook is with me, Danny Kelly, and Spurs bandwagon. If it is, indeed it is about, they're all conquering Antonio Conte bandwagon. Um, pictures up this week on Merseyside against an Everton side who themselves could do with a decent result. Does the team pick itself? Does is, is it virtually the, is it the same eleven, Jack? I don't know. I don't know. So I'm sure Luis will be the same, and the back three, and the wing backs, and Kane and Son. And probably Lucas. But I just wonder whether he'll stick with Skip and Hoiberg or make a change in midfield. Because like we said, that's that really is the big kind of question mark at the moment. And maybe he 
You know, he might want some fresh legs, in which case Ndombele, uh, or Lacelso or Winks, or Delhi. So that, to me, is the most interesting bit of the team. I saw, or I think the other eight guys, I think you can pretty much write down now. It's been a, an absolute blizzard of articles in The Athletic over this week. For those of our listeners who are not subscribers, those fools, just give us a, a taste, if you would, of some of the things that you and your colleagues have been writing, because we've it's been a Conte fest, hasn't it? Um, and he's been examined from every possible viewpoint. Yeah, so uh, Charlie and James have done something about uh, what can Conte do with Kane. You know, looking at what Conte did with Lukaku, kind of taking his game to the next level, both like physically, getting him fit, helping him lose weight, helping him link up with Latero Martinez, which became an amazing strike strike combination, and just wondering whether or not that same kind of physical and mental approach could work well for Kane, who, to be honest, does look like he kind of would enjoy the sort of bit more sort of hands-on coaching after I think everyone at Spurs has had it's been quite it's been quite hands-off at Tottenham really since Pochettino got sacked mm. two years ago so so th- that was interesting I know we've got more stuff coming on to do with about what it's like just to play for Conte you know with stories from all sorts of players and throughout Conte's career and looking at his his amazing methods and how intense he is and how how focused and how obsessed with details Yes, there's also for anybody, and I mean, don't know if anyone wants to subject themselves to this, but for anyone think who wants to remind themselves of the Nuno era, uh, me and Charlie did a big piece about how it exactly it all unraveled for Nuno, what went wrong, what the players were thinking, what the staff were thinking, what it was like at the dressing in the training ground, and and that kind of thing. For anyone who wants to kind of subject themselves to the sort of anti-nostalgia of the Nuno era. Yeah, an amazing uh, bunch of articles uh, on The Athletic, in The Athletic, however you want to say it, over the last few days. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can read all of our articles on Conte's appointment and his first week in charge by going to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. And right now, you can sign up with a 33% discount on a full subscription. You'll also be able to access all of our podcasts ad-free. We're back on Monday. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.